I mean, I've thought about it. Of course I have. Because God knows I have been in the other chair already. You know, the big comfy chair in the office. I've thought about being the person across the room in the not-quite-as-comfy chair. The person who does all the listening and the asking of questions. I've thought about it for a lot of reasons. One of them being that I'm not far from that role right now. I sit in a more functional, less comfy chair, asking personal mental health-related questions every week as part of my work on this podcast that you're listening to right now. Say it with me. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. I've thought about becoming a therapist. Haven't done it, but have thought about it. You, a person with enough of an interest in people and mental health to listen to this show, may have considered it as well. So what is it like for people who have actually taken the plunge, left their current careers and gone and gotten all that education and training? Does the reality measure up to the picture in the mind? And how much of being a good therapist can even be taught versus qualities that you just have to have already in your heart and brain. I wanted to ask those questions, probingly, but with a lot of kindness and sympathy as well, of people who have been there. In a bit, we'll hear from a member of our Prescies group on Facebook who has transitioned into being a therapist. But first, Lori Gottlieb is a therapist in California and the author of the best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It tells the story of her journey into both sides of therapy, both chairs. Lori also hosts the Dear Therapists podcast. Lori Gottlieb, welcome back to Depression Mode. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me back. And we join you as you are dealing with COVID. So uh, if, if, you, <laughs> if you need to <laughs> cough horribly... Um, everyone will understand. Great. I'll, I'll try okay. my best to refrain. Okay, great. Well, let's, let's take back to where you were when you first got this idea of maybe, uh, becoming a therapist. Like what, how was your life different? What, what, what was the life you were living at the time? So I, I was never a person who thought that I would become a therapist. That was never one of the career options that I had in mind. I was always really interested in stories. And so um, I was interested in literature. I was interested in language. I was interested in culture. And when I graduated from college, I actually started working in the entertainment business because I was really, really interested in how stories are told um, in film. And then I eventually moved over to television because I liked the episodic nature of it, which I didn't realize at the time sort of foreshadowed the way that therapy works, which is you have these weekly episodes the way that you do Mm. as a therapist. And you have these longer arcs and you have these smaller moments that are really important that you can't really capture the same way in a 90-minute film. So I moved over to television, and coincidentally, uh, the shows that I was assigned to that first year that I got there were shows you may have heard of. One is called Friends. and I've heard of that one. The other one, though, was ER. Mm, and Medical. 
Right. And in ER, um, we had a consultant on the show who was an ER doc. And I was, part of my job was to go and hang out in the ER to help come up with story ideas. And I was fascinated by the ER because these were real stories. These were real people. You, you, when you come to an ER, it's an inflection point. Nobody expects to go to an ER. That's the entire point of an ER is that something unexpected happens in your life. There's a turning point. And I didn't want to go back to the office. And at some point, the, the consultant said, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. <laughs> and um, I still didn't think I was going to become a therapist. And he said to me, you know, maybe you should go to medical school. And I laughed because I was a French major in college. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still loved math and science, but I wasn't somebody that was on that track or had ever really been on that track. I was always a humanities person. Mm. And so I kept going back to my job. And I really just the more that I spent in the ER, the more I thought, this is really, really interesting to me. Maybe I will go to medical school. But again, never thinking about psychiatry or, or becoming a therapist. And so I took all the classes that I needed to take, all the science classes. I took the MCAT. I was accepted into medical school. And when I got to medical school, I realized it was really different from this idea that I had of being, again, going back to stories and the human condition, of being sort of like the family doctor who sees people through their lives. And it was, you know, when I, when I got there, I, I went up to Stanford for medical school. And all of my professors were wonderful, but they kept saying to me, there's this new thing called managed care. This was 1999. <laughs> There's this oh, new yeah. thing called managed care and you get 15 minutes with your patients and you have to see thousands of them and the insurance companies are telling you what to do. And it was sort of like the art and the humanity of medicine were really changing. And I, a lot of my professors were saying this is really different and they knew kind of what my orientation was. And I wasn't interested in being a researcher and doing sort of, you know, like the non-clinical side of medicine. So I really wanted to be that clinician. And so I ended up leaving medical school. I realized this isn't what I want to do. I started writing when I was in medical school about the experience of being in medical school. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting because I can really help to tell people's stories. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell people's stories as a journalist. And so I did that. And then when I had my son, I was writing as a journalist and I realized as a new parent and any new parents out there might be able to relate, um, that it gets very lonely that, you know, there's not a lot of sort of like adult interaction during the day. And so, yes. um, all these deliveries would come because you have a new baby and the UPS guy would come and I would detain him with conversation. You know, it would be like, Hey, you know, how about those diapers? And do you have kids and how's the weather? And he literally, even if things needed signatures, he would just leave it at my door. So he didn't have to talk to like, you know, the lonely new mom. Right. And I realized like, I need to do something. Writing could be very lonely and I need to do something. And then I thought, you know, maybe I should 
go back and finish medical school and maybe I should do psychiatry. And that's where that idea came from. So I called up the dean at Stanford Medical School, who I had become close with when I was there because I used to run her mother-daughter book groups. So you can see, like, I was always about story. And, And I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, well, you're welcome to come back, but here's the thing. Psychiatry is a lot about medication management. And the training is so much about medication management. That's where it's going nowadays. And so if you come back, that's going to be your training. You're probably going to end up doing a lot of, um, you know, medication management for your job. If you want the other kind of training, you're going to have to get that elsewhere. And you really want to go through the rest of medical school, residency, all of internship, fellowship, all of that with a baby, with a toddler, when what you really need for the training you want is a master's degree in clinical psychology. And it was the best advice ever. So I ended up getting a master's in clinical psych and, um, and I have this hybrid career where I'm still a writer and I have this clinical career as well. And I think they both really speak to each other. I feel like they're both in conversation with each other. So you had this fascination with stories and with storytelling and kind of the arcs of, of people's lives. Did you, did you have to learn anything from, which is a big part of being a therapist, did you have to learn anything totally from scratch that you didn't know while you were in training to be a therapist, like a skill that you had to develop from point zero? Well, you know what's really interesting? There's this class in medical school called Patient Doctor, and it's they videotape you as you walk in to see a an actor who's a patient. <laughs> and it's to get you used to coming in and, and learning how to how to do those interactions and how do you get to a diagnosis, right? Mm. So the first thing that happened was, and you're being videotaped, and then people discuss the videotapes with you, your professors and your classmates. And out of because I had come later to medical school, I'd already had this career in Hollywood. So I was used to interacting with people in a different way than I think people who have just been students are. And so I was the only person in this class of really brilliant classmates. These are you know incredible classmates that I had. I was the only person who came in and introduced myself to the patient. I was the only person who said hi. Here's my, my name is this, what's your name, how are you, right? Just that, that sort of basic interaction. And I think that really served me well um, as a therapist too, because a lot of people, they go straight from their undergrad, maybe they majored in psychology, and then they go to grad school in psycholo- clinical psychology, but they don't have that out in the world experience. And what we do is so based on this I-thou relationship, the human-to-human relationship. And so you can have all the training in the world, but if you don't know how to relate in a really authentic way with another person, it's going to be really hard for you. And we should point out, too, that becoming a therapist varies widely from state to state. Like what somebody goes through in New York is different from what they go through in Illinois or, or in your case, California. How long was the process from the time that you started your education there to the time that you were actively seeing clients? Many years. Um, you have about, it depends how quickly you do it. So I didn't do it as quickly as possible because I also had a baby. Um, so I think I did 
three or four years of grad school. Um, some people can do it in two to three, but that's that's challenging. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you have to do three thousand hours of your clinical internship, and you're not doing every minute of every day, right? Because you're doing supervision, you're writing your chart notes, you're eating your lunch, you're <laughs> um, going to the bathroom. <laughs> so it's not like it's not like a forty hour work week. It's like literally how many hours are you spending? in these various endeavors. Um, so it that took several years too. And then you have to take your board exams. And so you have to study for the exams and prepare for the exams. Then you have to take your boards. There's two sets of boards. And then you're licensed. And then you can start however you want to start, whether you're doing a practice or you're working in a, um, an organization. And what did you do? Um, I went into... I. I had done my internship at a clinical setting, and then I um, had. When you're doing your last part of your internship, you can do a supervised private practice. So you're an intern in somebody else's private practice, mm. and then I moved into my own private practice as soon as I was licensed. Okay, what surprised you most about about the process of getting that education and getting that training? What 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 surprised you? Oh, so much. I'm still surprised every day. Um, I think what surprised me was how much I would grow from the experience that you think about, oh, I'm going to help other people. But I think what really surprised me was how much sitting in a room with somebody else as they think about these big life questions makes you ask yourself these big life questions too. And it really holds you accountable in your own life for how am I living my life? With what kind of intentionality am I living my life? How am I behaving in my relationships? What is my meaning? What is my purpose? All the kinds of things that other people are seeking answers to, you're seeking answers to at the same time. More with Lori Gottlieb just ahead. back with author and therapist Lori Gottlieb. Maybe maybe a bit of an unfair question, but uh, what kind of person would be well-suited to this kind of career? And conversely, what kind of person would face a whole lot of challenges in this kind of career? I think the person who's well-suited to this kind of career is a very curious person. Someone who is genuinely fascinated by the ridiculousness of the human condition. And I say that with all due respect, meaning the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do, the ways in which we get in our own ways, the ways in which we don't even realize that we are holding ourselves back or keeping ourselves stuck. And I'm not saying that there aren't external circumstances that get in our way, because obviously there are numerous external circumstances, whether those start with the the people you surround yourself with or the society that we live in. Those are all extremely real. But at the same time, we do have choices. And I think that the idea that we have the freedom and the agency to take responsibility for our own lives is both incredibly liberating and incredibly frightening. (laughs) And so 
Um, and, and I think, too, just the ways in which we make sense of our own behavior and other people's behavior until you're actually sitting down with a therapist and saying, wait a minute, let's slow down here. And you start to say, yeah, maybe I could have handled that differently. Right. Mm, yeah. So I, I think that it's just fascinating the ways in which we make sense of our behavior and other people's behavior is is really interesting. And then who who's going to run into some choppy water? Uh, what kind of a person is going to have a, a rougher time with this career? Uh, I think people who aren't able to see their own humanity. In other words, if you see yourself as at a different level than your clients, if you see yourself as sort of better than, as the expert, I don't see myself as the expert. Yes, I have expertise and yes, I am using my expertise to help the people who come in to see me. But I am, you know, as I say at the beginning of, of my book, um, you know, my greatest credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. And I think that if you don't have that humility, then it's going to be very hard for you to have compassion for the people that you're working with. And you really need to have compassion for them. Hmm. Does the reality of doing the job, and, and you know, as you say, you're, you're a writer, you're a, you know, you've a wonderful book, um, and you're also a clinician. Does the reality of being a clinician measure up to the picture that you had in your mind? Oh, exceeds my expectations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, speaking of my book, that's why I wrote Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, because I think that, you know, in the book, I follow the lives of, of four of my patients as I help them through their various struggles. But I'm the fifth patient in the book and you see me mm. going to my own therapist. And I really wanted people to see what I think therapists have the privilege of seeing, which is what does it look like to be human? What does it really look like? Not the social media version, not the public version, not even the version that maybe we present to our friends and family members, but what does it really look like when people are at their most honest and vulnerable and authentic. And to see people grow and change and to see the potential in all of us to do that, I think that's the greatest privilege of this of this profession. And mm. so I wanted other people to get to see that too and to see themselves mirrored in the people that I write about. Because I think that we're all so much the same. And I think that out in the world, we think that we're so different from one another. But what I see as a therapist is how much, no matter what people come in with, no matter what their stories are, how much at the end of the day, we all just want to love and be loved. We all have very similar sort of goals in life, insecurities, um, ways of being that, that get in our way, ways of protecting ourselves that aren't very effective. We're all so similar. And I mm. think that that's, that's incredible to see, and I think that it changes the way that I move through the world, and it, I, I hope that it changes the way other people move through the world, too. You know, people who listen to this show, some of the people who listen to this show, I think, are people who deal with some mental health challenges, you know, whether it's uh, an obsessive-compulsive disorder or a major depressive disorder or, or something else. You know, there's there's a lot of things that, that are available, certainly. Do you need to have 
all your shit straightened out before you become a therapist? Or can you have challenges that you're working on yourself, even as you're trying to help other people? That's a great question because it's, it's not a yes or a no. What I mean is that you need to really understand yourself if you want to be a therapist, but that doesn't mean that you have all your shit worked out. It means that you know what you're working on and you're actively working on it and it doesn't bleed into the therapy room. So an example might be someone has a difficult relationship with their mother and they have a client who comes in who also has a difficult relationship with their mother. You might be working on that difficult relationship with your mother, but you have to really make sure that your issues around that are not going to cloud how you think about this other person's issues with their mother. So you can use your experience a little bit, but you can't assume that they're having the same experience. So you can say, oh, you can think to yourself, oh, this is something that my therapist helped me with in this way. I wonder if that might help. But you can't assume that they're having the same experience. Mm. Um, Depression, for example, you obviously talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, Everyone's experience of depression is different. So there are similarities, but you really want to make sure that when someone comes in that you're hearing about their experience. What is happening for them? So just because you've experienced depression doesn't mean that you're going to be better at helping someone else who has depression. In fact, one of my supervisors once said, when you have, when you've experienced something similar to somebody else, be very, very careful and get a lot of supervision while you're seeing that client. That's a time when you really have to make sure that you are getting some outside supervision so that, you know, it's not like, oh, this is going to be easier because I've experienced this too. This is actually going to be harder because I've experienced this too. And then how do you walk the line between, I guess, between sympathy and empathy? Like to to hear about the challenges someone is having, maybe about the traumas that, that your client has experienced without being devastated, without taking it all on yourself, but also caring uh, to a to a necessary degree, and having a, a the human relationship that you're talking about. How how do you draw that boundary, and and how challenging was drawing that boundary for you? Well, I think you just have a a human reaction when someone comes in and they're telling you something that's incredibly upsetting, and to know that they experienced that. And so much of of what they experienced is often when they were children and they were really helpless in that situation. And I think that the hopeful part is that they're here now and they're really interested in having a different life. They're really interested in now that they have agency and now that they are adults and they are out of that situation, they're really interested in learning what they can do. That's incredible to me that they made it to that point, especially when I hear some of these stories. Hmm. So I think that for me, it feels almost heroic that they've shown up in my office and they're willing to figure out a different way to live the life that they have. 
Do you ever experience burnout? I think that in the beginning, I had incredible clinical supervisors who really talked about how not to get to that point. So there are people who think, oh, it's fine. I can just see patient after patient, hour after hour. Eight hours, eight patients. Bring them on. Right. And I just don't think that you're doing anybody a service by doing that. Not only are you are you hurting yourself, but I don't think that you're bringing your best self to those sessions. So for me, I've been very intentional from the very beginning about how I structure my schedule. And I always make sure that I can eat. So if, if, if I'm hungry, I'm not going to be any use to anybody, seriously. Um, if I need to go to the bathroom, you know, I mean, just stuff like that where people don't give themselves that time. Some people go all the way up to the hour instead of giving themselves that 10 minutes between sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I just don't understand how you can just transition from, you know, even just just emotionally transition that you've just been talking about something. You want to think about it for a little bit. I like to sit down and think about it after the session. Maybe I'll write my notes. Um, Maybe I just kind of sit with it and kind of think, oh, maybe I could do this next time. Or, oh, let me just sit with that emotion for a minute. Um, So I don't want to rush now into somebody else's session because I'm still processing the last session. I think that we really need to think about this isn't the kind of work going back to medical school where it's like, okay, someone's coming in. Let's do like, you know, the checkup and let's see, oh, wait, they have strep throat. Let's do this. It's it's not that. It's something that that you really need to sit with. And so I really encourage people to leave some time between sessions and not to... um, and not to have too many sessions per day. That obviously we need to have enough sessions so that we're, it's a viable career. But, you know, there are people who will literally just do like eight hours a day and, you know, five days a week. And they do burn out. They don't realize it. They think they're fine for a while. And then they realize this is not viable. Yeah. Of the six characters on Friends, which one desperately needed therapy the most? It's an interesting way that you phrase that question, who needed therapy? Yeah. So a lot of people have this idea that everybody should go to therapy. And I don't. I don't, okay. I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think therapy can be very useful for many people. I don't think every single person needs to go to therapy. I do think that um, what we really need is we need each other. And so there's a, there's a difference between I'm really having trouble in my life, whether it's in relationships or, um, or I'm, you know, with a mood disorder or whatever it might be. That's something you probably want to go talk to a therapist about. But I think in Friends, they were just going through their 20s, you know. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the 20s are really hard because you're kind of creating a family with mm-hmm. a chosen family. You're figuring out, you know, what is my what does my life look like? What do I want to do with my life? What does my career look like? How do I make money? How do I pay bills? Um, it's a really, really challenging time. So I, I feel like they were just going through their twenties. I don't I don't know that they needed therapy. I think there were issues that that they had along the way that maybe a therapist could have helped with romantically. Sure. sure. Um, 
<laughs> but but you know, I, I I think what was so relatable about that show was was we all remember what it was like to be in our twenties. Everyone, I recommend you pick up a copy of Laurie Gottlieb's book. Maybe you should talk to someone and read it and get more of her story. You can also find her uh, on the podcast in your podcast app on the Dear Therapists podcast. Laurie, thanks as always. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much. You can find more about Lori at lauriegottlieb.com. After the break, a member of our Preshies group on Facebook who embarked on a new career as a therapist. We're back and we're talking about the myths and realities of starting a new career as a therapist. Andrea Kremer is a mental health clinician right outside Boston. She's also a member of our Preshies group on Facebook, a group you can join as well for conversation and support about mental health. Andrea Kremer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's uh, go back to where you were when you made the decision to shift careers and and become a therapist yourself, what were you doing with your life at that point? So um, I had an interesting life. I um, I have been in marketing my whole life. I, I should mention, since you can't see me, if you're listening to me, um, that I am very solidly in midlife. Okay. Um, so I had a whole <laughs> career before I decided to do this. I worked in uh, corporate marketing, and then I transitioned into the music business. I worked at a couple of record labels, shout out to Q Division and Rounder. And then I I started my own music marketing company called Shake and Howdy, where I did, where I do uh, creative marketing for bands and artists, websites, music videos, that sort of thing. And I use the present tense because I still do that. Okay. We'll get to, we'll get to one of the benefits of being a therapist. Uh, yes. um, so I, I don't call it a career change. I call it um, I picking up a very expensive and elaborate side hustle. Okay. And I um, still work in music. And my joke to my music clients is that I'm not changing jobs. I'm just expanding my service offerings. Gotcha. It includes gotcha. psychotherapy for people who deeply need it, by the way. So then how did the decision come about? How did When did you first get the idea and when did you act on it? I for, well, I have been the beneficiary of therapy for many years, as I'm sure many of your listeners have. Um, my own mental health issues started in college. I had panic attacks. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't connect it to my life circumstances. I just thought I was going crazy. I went to an excellent therapist and she did magic on me. That is what it felt like. And of course, now I know it was CBT, (laughs) but at the time- behavior therapy. Exactly. Sorry. Um, Yeah. And it it felt like magic. So that was kind of my first, um, like, oh, how did did that work? What was that about? How did she do that? Where did she learn to do that? So I would would have described myself as therapist curious for a very long time. I had friends who were therapists. I had one friend in particular- um, in the Boston music scene, whose day job was a therapist. And he, we would be out at gigs and I would ask him about his day job. And what's that like? And how, where did you learn to do that? And how, where did you go to school? And he told me about how he did it. He recommended his program, which was geared for adult learners, all the classes after five or on weekends. And I got more and more sort of therapist curiouses, curious. And um started doing a little bit more research. I talked to some folks on the phone. I went to some open houses for, for other programs in the area. And and this is important. Every single therapist I talked to 
said they loved their job. Mm. My background in corporate America, that was also magic. I did not understand how I could see or hear so many people saying they love their job. So now we get to the part that is not so much about like helping other people, but more about helping me, which is how I actually made the decision. Um, the circumstances of my life were such that I had time to go back to school. I I wanted the option to be self-employed since I already was. And I was like, well, I could kind of pick up another self-employment gig while I'm self-employed. Um, I have a school-aged child, which everybody out there who has a school-aged child means knows you need to have flexibility um, to like shuttle people around and accommodate their activities. Sure. My school-aged child is about to go to college and all that that entails financially. And I wanted something that I could keep doing even into retirement, which I know this will shock you. The music industry did not adequately prepare me for. Uh, <laughs> a lot of strong 401k programs yeah, in rock and roll. Huh? My my indie pension will get me through. <laughs> um, no. So I really was like, oh, I really have not adequately prepared for my future. And what can, what can, what can I uh, utilize my sort of advancing age and wisdom for in a positive way? Yeah. Uh, it turns out that is really a thing that it, that's a benefit. Uh, as an older therapist, I've, I've seen some shit and I think that that also helps people feel comfortable with me. So you make this decision then like this is, this is something I'm going to pursue. Yeah. What did you do next? I, so I, researched programs. And I, I don't know how much like you want me to get into sort of the process of being a therapist. It does vary depending on where you live. Yes, it does. Um, but it's basically three steps. You go to graduate school, you get a master's degree. Second step is you take some kind of exam, depending on which license you're going for, that could be different. And then you get some amount of supervised experience actually doing it. And then you can apply for your independent license and don't need to be under supervision anymore. So um, I decided for me, it was going to be mental health counseling, but there might in some other states be social work or psychologist or substance use counselor. Um, and I wanted specifically to focus on relationships because that's the thing that kind of gets me excited. And so I found a program that had a concentration in marriage and family therapy. Mm. Um, I went part-time. It took me three years. It was all nights and weekends. Uh, perhaps ironically in the middle of that, we had a pandemic and that sparked a global mental health crisis. And everyone was like, you did it again. You picked a hot field. So <laughs> it was um, perhaps a blessing and a curse. But What surprised you most about the training and the education process? Um, it wasn't Okay, so the thing about it seeming like magic, um, it, it, it turns out, and we learned in school, that it almost doesn't matter what intervention you use or what modality you ascribe to. What matters is your ability to form a supportive relationship with someone. So I was, you know, I went in thinking, oh, what if I don't know how to, what if I can't learn how to do the secret handshake? Um, and it turns out that there are these things called common factors, which, which, which are the elements of your relationship with your therapist that help you to change. Unconditional positive regard. You like, you like the client. Empathy. You understand and care about the client. 
and and congruence or genuineness, which is you are who you seem to be, right? Um, if you can do those things and form a relationship with someone and make them feel liked and understood and cared about, they will change in a positive direction. And um, figuring out that there was no magic to this was was kind of surprising and reassuring. Um, and, and I will also say, and this might be kind of sad to say, that another surprise for me was that there are so many people who have never felt that, who have never received unconditional positive regard, empathy. They, 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 and so have, giving someone their first experience of like, actually, you seem like a good person and reflecting that back to them has been really, really eye-opening. Hmm. Um, so it took about three years, you say, to, yep. to get through the program. Um, how did you go about finding a job? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, remember that guy? Or did from they the... come to you on platters? Well, now, <laughs> post-pandemic, <laughs> I will say this is definitely a growth field, unfortunately. Um, but that that friend from the Boston music scene hooked me up with my internship. Um, they liked me well enough. And then, and this is kind of the idea, like you stay where you, where you interned and then they pay you for your, um, postgraduate experience. So that is what I did and am doing. And then I sort of, because I can't stop taking jobs, apparently picked up another couple of jobs alongside that. So I, I now have three employers technically, which is probably not ideal, but keeps me on my toes. So are you doing relationship and, and family counseling in all three jobs? I am doing some individual counseling um, and some um, marriage counseling, relationship counseling. Yeah, a little bit of both. And some a couple of adolescents that I picked up along the way, which is really fascinating and interesting. Hmm. Kind of a, an abstract question. I, I hope it makes sense when I ask it. But um, do you find that you're relying mostly on instincts and approaches and conversational styles you already had? Uh or is it more, I learned this stuff in school, here I am trotting it out um, and, and going off of uh, what your training taught you? So it's really interesting. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a fight between those two elements in me as I'm doing therapy. I, I'm going to be me. I'm going to form a relationship with my client based on who I am. Um but because I'm a new therapist, here is where the imposter syndrome comes in. I, I do kind of have to battle that voice that's like, you should be doing this in these three steps. And there's seven ways to do that. And there's a list of A, B, and C. And um, I, I have, that's called manualized therapy. And it, it's really helpful when you have a particular um, diagnosis or presentation that that, that calls for. But Going back to the common factors, the things that really matter are the the ways that you make the person feel about themselves, not so much the steps that you follow. So as a new therapist, it's very tempting to want to lean on or make sure I'm following the directions or following the manual. Um, and of course, insurance companies love it when you do that too. But at the end of the day, the thing that matters is that you're, you're you. What surprised you the most about working as an actual professional in this field? Uh, the, that I could do it. <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some, a minor grievance. It is, it, it does actually take a lot of, um, mental and emotional effort to listen to people's problems for hours at a time. 
with a great deal of focus in a way that you can remember and analyze them. And then when you meet the next time, remember and ask what's going on and how, how did that work out? Mm. Um, it, it leaves you very susceptible to burnout. It leaves you susceptible to what's called vicarious trauma, which is hearing about other people's upsetting experiences and kind of not being able to rid yourself of those um, stories. So it's really important to have good supports of your own, which thankfully I do. Um, but at the end of the day, when when I've sat through sort of four or five hours of this, I feel a little bit drained in a way that I wasn't expecting in a different way than when I'm doing sort of Photoshop or, you know, video editing. Right. It's different. It's much more analytical and very focused. Was that hard not to not to give yourself in, in a, to a total empathetic reaction and take on the psychic damage of, of the clients? You have to get good at compartmentalizing. Um, yeah. you're, you have to get good at sort of caring, but knowing where you stop and the other person starts. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a dance that you have to do. Are you trained how to do that dance or do you have to figure out the steps on your own? I think you, you kind of have to figure it out on your own. And I, I'm really fortunate that I'm good at it. But like, especially for me, working with kids is where I feel that pull. Um, so I, I probably won't work with kids anymore. And the other thing is like, there's a, there's a therapist for everyone. There's a, there's a good fit for everyone. So you kind of figure out like, how much of this can I tolerate? There are definitely people who can work with troubled kids. And at the end of the day, they can still go back into their own lives. And so you kind of figure out where your tolerance is and where you're a good fit, who you're a good fit for. And what has this experience meant for your own mental health and any challenges that you had going into it? Um, well, I will say that... Can you cure yourself now? No. <laughs> <laughs> you, that, I wish that it came... Like, I do actually think a lot of people go into this field to figure out something about themselves. Um, I mean, that's sort of a probably a, a cliche about therapy, but... Um, but sort of the flip side of that that is real is that if you ever felt that nobody understood your problems, if you ever if you were ever a person who struggled or felt alienated, if you become a therapist, it becomes very clear how much of that we all have in common, how, how sort of similar everyone's struggles are at the root. Everyone is struggling with, you know, low self-esteem or um, trauma or burdens from family of origin stuff. So it, 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 at the end of the day, it kind of makes you feel a little more normal. or mm. And then you get to use that to relate to other people. You get to t turn that into a positive. Do you still go to therapy yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How has this experience changed your relationship with your therapist? <laughs> First of all, when I, when I mentioned it to her, which I did very delicately, um, I waited for the, the guffaw or the wince or the, <laughs> right? How and dare she, you? <laughs> yeah, she was, you? Oh, yeah, okay, you and your problems, you're, you'll make a great therapist. But she <laughs> actually was like, yes, I think that's a great idea. So mm. that was startling. Um, and, the, and now she's kind of become, she's a mentor to me. She's a professional mentor. She She throws in, she knows the circumstances of my life very intimately. So she will also now be able to say, don't overburden yourself with clients. Once you pick up a client, that's years of commitment. You know, your schedule is. And so she knows like sort of how to counsel me professionally 
because she understands the job and the circumstances of my life. So it's actually kind of deepened my relationship with her that we're doing the same the same work. So it sounds like it's going well for you then, Andrea. <sighs> I think so. <laughs> um, I, the other thing I want to mention is like, I also underestimated how sedentary this is. And at oh, first okay. I was like, yes, it's the perfect job for me. But for <laughs> real, like at the end of the day, you're sitting for hours at a time. And I have to say, like, I'm on a mailing list with these very esteemed professional therapists and they get into sort of all sort of esoterica or they're they're throwing around um, referrals. And then someone said, who can recommend a good chair? Mm. And like my, in my inbox exploded. <laughs> 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 Got to get a good chair. That's my best advice. Andrea Kremer is a member of our Precious group and a clinician in the Boston area. Andrea, thank you so much for, um, well, for letting us talk to you for free, I suppose, is the, the best thing. <laughs> And Anytime. For, sure, for sharing your insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our program exists because people support it financially. People who listen to the show, who get something out of the show, kick us a few bucks. That's the way this model works, and we would love to hear from you if we haven't already. If you've already donated, thank you. You are getting the show out to people, and it is helping them. If you haven't donated yet, it's okay easy to do, easy to fix that situation. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join and find a level that works for you. I don't know your situation. Find a, a dollar level that you're comfortable with and then select Depression Mode from the list of shows. You will listen differently knowing that you are putting this show out into the world. Be sure to hit subscribe, give us five stars, write rave reviews. All of that helps get the show even further out into the world where it can help even more people. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline can be reached in the United States by calling or texting 988. Free, available 24-7. Our Instagram and Twitter are both at DepressionPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe and Instagram at John Moe also. Please use our electric mail address. It's DepressionMode at MaximumFun.org. Hi, Credits listeners. I like to think that there's a therapist supply store somewhere that sells comfy chairs and not as comfy chairs and ferns and gentle wall art and unobtrusive but easy-to-spot clocks. Maybe I'll open that store. Want to come work for me? Depression Mode is made possible by your contributions. Our production team includes Raghu Manavalan, Gabe Mara, Kevin Ferguson, and me. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. Fresh Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Bye now. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing no one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing This is Jonathan from Texas I wanted to let you know that things can get better While there is life, there is hope Good luck Maximum Fun A worker-owned network Of artist-owned shows Supported directly by you.